Hello and welcome to the third episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I am your host, Trevor Cooper, recording from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Last year, I was fortunate to check off two bucket list items. The first item was to complete an ancestry test to find out exactly where I came from. People of African descent here in the United States have been cut off from our ancestry and culture. But thanks to science and technology, I was able to get a detailed report informing me of my genetic composition by tribe and region. I'll admit, it took me several weeks to mentally and emotionally process what I was reading. I was impressed by the detail of the report and how my DNA connected me with a great degree of precision to a land I had only learned about generally through my education. The report also connected me to unknown distant genetic relatives, many of whom are now messaging me from South Carolina and all over the world for more information about me and my immediate family. The second item I crossed off my bucket list last year was to actually travel to the continent of Africa, the motherland. These two bucket list items, the pilgrimage and the ancestry results, intersected in West Africa in the Gold Coast region. What is the Gold Coast? The Gold Coast was a British crown colony on the Gulf of Guinea along the coast of West Africa. The British occupied this colony from 1821 to 1957, now known as the Republic of Ghana. Initial interactions with Portuguese traders is where this name comes from because of the substantial deposits of gold found in the soil. By 1483, the Portuguese had built a castle, which is a sanitized name for the commercial factory that processed gold and other natural resources and commodities being extracted from West Africa, including enslaved Africans at Elmina. King Afonso I of Congo wrote an interesting letter to the King of Portugal in 1526. In this letter, King Afonso I is pleading for his society because he realizes the devastation of the increased demand for enslaved Africans. Here's an excerpt. Moreover, sir, in our kingdoms, there is another great inconvenience, which is of little service to God. And this is that many of our citizens, keenly desirous as they are of the wares and things of your kingdoms, which are brought here by your people, and in order to satisfy their voracious appetite, seize many of our people, freed and exempt men, and very often it happens that they kidnap even noblemen and the sons of noblemen and our relatives and take them to be sold to the white men who are in our kingdoms. And for this purpose, they have concealed them and others are brought during the night so that they might not be recognized. And as soon as they are taken by the white men, they are immediately ironed and branded with fire. And when they are carried to be embarked, if they are caught by our guards as men, the whites allege that they have bought them, but they cannot say from whom. So that it is our duty to do justice and to restore to the freemen their freedom. But it cannot be done if your subjects feel offended, as they claim to be. And to avoid such a great evil, 
we passed a law so that any white man living in our kingdoms and wanting to purchase goods in any way should first inform three of our noblemen and officials of our court, end quote. As the Western world began to develop, enslaved Africans became more valuable than the gold resource and were deported from interior areas of Africa, often hundreds of miles away from the coast through tribal conquest. These intertribal wars fed the Europeans' insatiable appetite for more black bodies, black gold, a most valuable commodity for the expanding sugar, rice, tobacco, and even cotton plantations stretching from Brazil to the Caribbean to the Carolinas and up the Atlantic seaboard into New England, adding thousands to its labor force while ensuring the rapid accumulation of wealth. Slave corporations, such as the London-based Royal African Company, had literally hit the jackpot while their opportunistic African partners benefited from these inhumane transactions for centuries. Tribesmen being traded for guns, fabrics, liquor, and fine china. Can you imagine the horror of being deported from your living room or backyard without notice, without process, without appeal, but by mayhem and genocide. I can only imagine what it felt like to be forced to march for weeks in extreme heat, climbing over 100 degrees, chained to my tribesmen until he collapsed in death from exhaustion or was whipped or mutilated for expressing his humanity by resisting arrest and captivity. It is reported that 40 to 50%, roughly eight to 10 million of the captured Africans died during the forest marches en route to the Atlantic Ocean. The transatlantic slave route's second leg was called the Middle Passage. This was the journey from West Africa to the Americas. It was the second leg of a commercial triangle that started and ended in Europe. According to estimates, from 1619 to 1865, 600,000 African slaves were brought against their will to the United States through the Middle Passage. For every 100 Africans arriving at the ports in the United States, 40 had died in Africa or on ships crossing the Atlantic. In the oral tradition passed to me, I'm told sharks followed slave ships from Africa to the Americas waiting for bodies to be thrown overboard. Even those Africans who arrived were suffering with fevers from the conditions of the two-month journey. Many of the enslaved Africans were near death or covered in sores and full of infection from malaria, yellow fever, hepatitis, and other diseases that come from exposure to feces, blood, vomit, and urine. By the turn of the 19th century, the British had consolidated its power at the Gold Coast coastline and began to illegally seize the lands adjacent to the factories owned by the local tribes through intimidation tactics and violence. The friendly trade partnership was collapsing and turning into something more sinister. By the turn of the 20th century, the Ashanti coalition, revered as the most powerful of the Gold Coast tribes, had lost several encroachment wars against the British and were finally conquered. The British, now the emerging world superpower, enjoyed unfettered control of the Gold Coast region's natural resources, 
resources such as gold, diamonds, ivory, pepper, timber, cocoa, grain, and enslaved Africans, and completed its consolidation of the Gold Coast, extracting resources and developing the Gold Coast to secure imperial interests. There's a cliche that I often say, if you let the devil ride, eventually he's going to want to drive. In the United States, the motivation to maintain chattel slavery was directly tied to the financial interest and symbiotic relationship between American banks, European and global markets, and plantation owners. This unlimited supply of unpaid labor guaranteed a maximum return on investment for all parties involved in the slavery supply chain. How could so-called Christian men and women reconcile, justify, defend, and be complicit in the savagery of chattel slavery for over 240 years? How could someone live among the oppressed, act as if they were doing them a favor by beating them, maiming them, and murdering them because the oppressed would not believe themselves to be inferior, despite being denied education, wages, and autonomy? How could Satan deceive this so-called Christian nation for so long? I submit that America wasn't deceived at all. America was formed from the seeds of rebellion, from the seed of exploitation, from the seed of murder, and from the seed of greed, collectively coined as liberty. German social theorist Karl Marx, who lived from 1818 to 1883, argued in his day that cultural pillars such as religion, law, and morality were outgrowths of a society's economic activity. I find his critique especially compelling because there are people who pray to the same God I pray to, protest in the same demonstrations as I do, but they go into a voting booth and vote their economic interests over their moral compass and God consciousness. Maybe Karl had a point. Marx also argued that each economic system or capitalist mode of production such as chattel slavery, contained within it a contradiction with those cultural pillars that would eventually lead to a society's demise and replacement by another more advanced stage of economic and social life. I think the short-lived Reconstruction period, from 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Abraham Lincoln to 1877, was in many ways this more advanced stage of economic and social life in the United States. This was a time of tremendous progress and racial equality where black men, many formerly enslaved, began to participate directly in the political process with the former slave-owning white men who used to own them. They were demanding social and economic autonomy. During this time, three constitutional amendments, known as the Reconstruction Amendments, were adopted. The 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude, was ratified in 1865. The 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, guaranteeing United States citizenship 
to all persons born or naturalized in the United States and granting them federal civil rights. The 15th Amendment, passed in early February 1870, decreed that the right to vote could not be denied because of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. I was also surprised to discover in God We Trust was placed on United States coins because of increased religious sentiment during the Civil War in 1861. Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase received appeals from Christians across the country urging the federal government to acknowledge God on United States currency. From Treasury Department records, it appears that the first request was received in a letter dated November 13, 1861. It was written by Reverend M. R. Watkinson from Ridleyville, Pennsylvania. His letter reads, Dear Sir, you are about to submit your annual report to the Congress respecting the affairs of the national finances. One fact touching our currency has hitherto been seriously overlooked. I mean the recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. You are probably a Christian. What if our republic were not shattered beyond reconstruction? Would not the antiquaries of succeeding centuries rightly reason from our past that we were a heathen nation? End quote. Reverend Watkinson's words resonate with me because the U.S. federal government only added God to its currency when the economy was at risk of collapse. That a political dispute, largely over enslaved Africans, caused a spiritual and moral correction on the face of the American currency. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I wonder what God has America been trusting in for the past 400 years. As we transition from Juneteenth, the commemoration of the last day of African slavery in the United States on June 19, 1865, to America's Independence Day, the murder of George Floyd still stings my soul and puts an unusually heavy damper on this celebration for me. How can we be celebrating freedom from British oppression in 1776 when black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated based on percentage of the U.S. population? In 2014, according to the NAACP website, African Americans constituted 2.3 million or 34% of the total 6.8 million correctional population. African Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white people. The imprisonment rate for African American women is twice that of white women. Nationwide, African American children represent 32% of children who are arrested, 42% of children who are detained, and 52% of children whose cases are judicially waived to criminal court. Though African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population, they comprised 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. If African Americans and Hispanics were incarcerated at the same rates as whites, prison and jail populations would decline by almost 40%. I want to leave you with a quote from Malcolm X, and it reads, 
I believe that there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those that do the oppressing. I believe that there will be a clash between those who want freedom, justice, and equality for everyone and those who want to continue the systems of exploitation. End quote. Oh, say, can you see? For this episode, I'd like to make three endorsements. The first endorsement is a book called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, written by civil rights litigator and legal mind Michelle Alexander. Ms. Alexander skillfully weaves a sociological and criminal narrative connecting the systematic subjugation and monetization of black bodies from the plantation to the prison industrial complex. What is essentially legalized slavery and perpetual second-class citizenship through felony convictions that has now crossed into the 21st century while decentralized black American leadership has either fallen asleep or ill at the political wheel at best or have been complicit in the deterioration of the core black family since the 1960s. My second endorsement is a book titled How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. It was written in 1972 by the late activist Walter Rodney. Rodney argues that Africa was deliberately exploited and underdeveloped by European colonial regimes. One of his main critiques throughout the book is that Africa developed Europe at the same rate as Europe underdeveloped Africa. For my third endorsement, I would like to shout out This Way Africa. This Way Africa is an Accra, Ghana-based touring company owned and operated by my good friend Isaac Barima. This Way Africa's mission is, quote, to provide superior and quality service that offers clients a relaxing, fun, and thought-provoking experience, end quote. While touring Ghana, I learned about the nation's history, particularly its struggle for independence from the British crown, Queen Elizabeth. How in 1957, Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, established the first African Republic to gain its independence from a European colonial power, and how many African Americans found refuge and strength in the Pan-African movement, including American civil rights icon and scholar Dr. W.E.B. Dubois, who immigrated to Accra, Ghana in 1961 after the United States refused to renew his passport. Thank you, Isaac, for connecting me closer to the ancestors during the year of return. If you want to know more about Ghana, then head on over to the website www.thiswayafrica.com. Thanks for joining this episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I hope you were enlightened, challenged, and even inspired. If you would like to connect with me on social media, then please find me on Facebook, Trevor A. Cooper, on Instagram, at Mr. Trevor, M-I-S-T-E-R-T-R-E-V-O-R. To find out more about the ministry, please go to www.impactfellowshipchurch.org. Until next week, be well, be wise, and be nice. God bless.